There's a statue of William Shakespeare in Central Park in New York. The money to build it came, for the most part, from the sale of tickets to a performance of Julius Caesar in 1864. Now, if I told you that there's a direct link between that statue, that performance, and one of our country's most notorious murders, would you believe me? And would you keep listening? Let's find out. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. That Julius Caesar production I mentioned featured three members of one of America's best-known theatrical families. Across the United States in the 19th century, the name Booth was synonymous with Shakespeare performance at its highest level. First, the British actor, Junius Brutus Booth, and then his son, Edwin, earned applause, rave reviews, and thousands of dollars, primarily performing Shakespeare in America's grandest theaters from 1821 until 1891. But Junius Brutus Booth also had three other sons by his American wife. Joe Booth had a mental illness and rarely left his mother's home. Junius Jr. performed mostly in obscurity in the saloons and mining camps of Gold Rush, California. And then there was the youngest son, John Wilkes Booth, best known as the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. Historian Nora Titone tells the story of the Booth brothers in her book, My Thoughts Be Bloody, the bitter rivalry between Edwin and John Wilkes Booth that led to an American tragedy. She stopped by the studio recently to talk. We call this podcast, My Brother, My Competitor. Nora Titone is interviewed by Barbara Bogate. Well, this story starts with the patriarch of the Booth acting family, Junius Brutus Booth. And not all of our audience perhaps knows of him. He was the leading Shakespearean actor of his day in the early 19th century. What was his story and what do we know about his style on stage, particularly when he was performing Shakespeare? Well, what's so extraordinary about Junius Brutus Booth, and it's so sad that he's so forgotten now, is that his what was extraordinary about him was that he fit in with this romantic movement in England at the time um, that Lord Byron belonged to, where there was this group of artists in London who were keen to explore the deepest and most remote recesses of human emotion and experience. And you could do this through poetry, you could do this through uh, literature or philosophy. And Junius Brutus Booth was the dramatic version of that. He brought something to the interpretation of Shakespeare that British audiences had never seen before. Right. You write that he he was volcanic and that he was like a lightning bolt. And, and Walt Whitman said he was just like an alien and there was something transformative about him. Was it was it this emotional intensity that that he that he imbued his acting with? There was this volcanic, you know, people said he would hurl lightning bolts from the stage or inspire whole audiences to have kind of conniption fits of ecstasy as they were watching him. You know, I I sometimes think we could compare him to some of the great American rock musicians um, (laughs) who have that kind of electrifying and charismatic. What do you mean, like Bruce Exactly, exactly. Um, (laughs) That he could just, he could whip up a frenzy in a crowd using Shakespeare's words. But what was really amazing about him, he specialized in Shakespeare's villains 
And what was uncanny and marvelous about watching him perform is that he would gradually become Shakespeare's worst monsters. Well, let me pick up on that because the flip side of this, though, is you describe mood swings that make it sound like he was perhaps mentally ill. Oh, yes. I mean, he was a remarkable figure in many ways. He was a prodigy from the earliest age. By the age of three, he was speaking Latin and Greek. And as he advanced in years, he acquired even more languages, 10, uh, by the time he was a teenager. And of course, this was long before psychology um, as a field had emerged. And so it was really interesting to try to understand what afflicted him that made his life and so difficult um, and, and fueled his genius um, as a performer. At one point, even when he was playing in Boston, um, he was playing King Lear, and he got so wrapped up in the moment that he broke down in the middle of a performance and said to his audience, I've gone mad, take me to a lunatic hospital. And he would kind of break through the fourth wall and need to stop acting and go away or run away even off the stage. He attempted suicide several times, um, once famously jumping off a steamboat into the Atlantic Ocean. So he had a volatile emotional life. So he was born in England, as as you said, and, yeah. and Junius Booth came to America to escape a scandal, actually. He was married to Adelaide Booth in England. She was his his wife. And they had a son. But then he had an affair with a young woman, and he got her pregnant. And they fled to start a life together in the New World. But his first wife, I mean, this is just amazing, had no idea about his second family or his more than 10 other children for, it sounds like, decades. I mean, how how did that happen? That's some secret to keep. It, It You know, and it's so interesting that you should ask that because I think it's the keeping of this immense secret that also exacerbated the stress and pressure of his kind of his mental state. So exactly as you said, he ran away with her to America, leaving his wife, Adelaide Booth, and his son, Richard, um, in a mansion in London. He assured them that he was just going to the United States and he would send money hundreds of uh, thousands of dollars in today's currency um, back to London to his wife and son. But in the meantime, as you say, he had a, a partner, Marianne Holmes, and they together had 10 children. He hid her away in rural Maryland, and together they reared this family in secret. And because Booth truly was Junius Brutus Booth, a celebrity of the first order, um, Newspapers would report about him wherever he went. And so he couldn't travel with the love of his life, Marianne Holmes, the mother of his 10 American children. He had to hide her away and keep the children's identities secret as well. And it's at this point that we get to your thesis, really, that the key to understanding why Junius's son, John Wilkes Booth, assassinated President Lincoln might have as much to do with his upbringing and also with a rivalry that he had with his brother Edwin and just family resentments and family stresses than it does with his political beliefs. So let's unpack this part of the story. Um, And first, I have to say, I didn't really know much about John Wilkes Booth's older brother Edwin until recently. Did you? 
It was um, startling. I had never heard of Edwin Booth and, um, you know, studied American history for years <laughs> in college. And I um, found him in a diary um, kept by Fanny Seward, the daughter of uh, William H. Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State. Um, she wrote about a visit that the great actor, the most famous Shakespearean actor in America, Edwin Booth, made to her family home in Washington, D.C. during the Civil War. He was an honored guest for dinner, um, and he was in Washington to give command performances for President Lincoln and Mrs. Lincoln. Because he was one of, he was the famous actor of his day. And yet, he was. Nothing. Yes. And we, and, you know, he's been lost to us now, um, overshadowed, of course, by his younger brother. Um, and let it be said, a younger brother who was not a talented actor. Um, but when you say that we can't understand what drove John Wilkes Booth to do what he did in Ford's Theater in 1865 without fully exploring the remarkable saga of the Booth family, you're absolutely right. I mean, this was a political crime for sure, but it was also the crime of someone who came of age in a family of actors who grew up in the world of the theater and who for his entire life was in the shadow of his enormously famous father and his even more famous older brother. Right. And we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I want to, I do want to pick up on that because the other thing that's hard for us to understand now is just what an outcast you would have been in the 19th century as a child of an actor. Oh, you're absolutely right. And it's so interesting that, you know, the Booth family had two strikes against them. I mean, not only were they actors, the Booth children also had another strike against them. They were illegitimate, and that was publicly known. There was a great scandal in the American newspapers when Junius Brutus Booth's legal wife, Adelaide, finally found out the secret. She came to America in a fury from London and sued Booth for desertion and having committed adultery and having had a second family. And it was also to add to the fact that Junius Brutus Booth, their father, was mentally unstable. Um, And he drank. And he drank heavily. He was a notorious drunk. He was an adulterer. And so all of these things made the Booth children, and let's remember, they didn't have the legal right to that last name, outcast. Right. And now let's hone in on this rivalry between the brothers, because that is fascinating. So you suggest that Edwin and John Wilkes, they didn't even get along as kids right from the beginning. it, it, It was a classic case of sibling rivalry. So Junius Brutus Booth, it in part can be blamed for setting up this rivalry in a way. He considered himself a genius. He wrote extensively in his journals about his powers and how amazing he himself was. And so, of course, narcissistically, he examined his children for signs of talent like his own. And while John Wilkes Booth was a perfect physical copy of his father, he didn't have a single spark of kind of the actor's gift. And that was evident from an early age. Edwin Booth, who bore no physical resemblance to his father, he much more resembled his beautiful mother, Marianne Holmes, did have that whatever it is that allows a theater artist to be transcendently effective on stage. And he had it from day one. And this is maybe why, in in addition to the fact that Edwin was uh, four years older than than John, that Junius the father decides that Edwin is is the genius in the family and 
he takes him on tour, really to be his caretaker, because he's out of out of control, especially when he drinks, and he drinks all the time. So it's to make sure he doesn't get too drunk too often. And so Edwin, just 12, this assignment lands on him. And uh, you write that this was a turning point for both brothers. Absolutely. When they made, so imagine idolizing your father and the father announces, I'm taking one of my sons with me to tour nationally. It was a 2,000-mile circuit they traveled every year on the theater circuit, um, north, and south, east, and hugely dangerous. Hugely dangerous. And, and, and it really took a toll physically. Oh, absolutely. This was long before railroads would make this easy. Um, So it was by steamboat, um, horseback, carriage, and often on foot. And, you know, to be the caretaker of a mentally unstable theatrical star was not an easy task. And for a 12-year-old boy, Edwin accomplished it extraordinarily well. But it really divided the brothers because... On Edwin's narrow little back depended the financial survival of his brothers, sisters, and mother, and their continued. And his, um, at this point, John Wilkes was in boarding school, and Edwin resented being taken out of school. He resented being put in servitude to his father, and he imagined his brother John Wilkes having a life of ease um, at a boarding school in Maryland. So. But what happens is these boys get put on two different tracks. John Wilkes is being raised by the family to be a gentleman of leisure, whereas Edwin, as grueling as his indentured servitude was to his father, is learning how to be an actor. He's, he said he imbibed through his ears every night as his great father went on the stage the, all the roles of Shakespeare. Right. So he gets this great apprenticeship in theater, and John Wilkes Booth, who also wants to be an actor, is stuck in a boarding school, and he's terrible at school. Okay, so now a second big turning point in the story comes when Edwin just has had enough. He quits being his father's caretaker, and he's 19 years old, and he strikes out on his own. And this is another um, flashpoint in the family's history. Junius Brutus's real wife comes. She sues him for everything because she finds out about his family. And she impoverishes Junius Brutus Booth, Marianne, and their surviving children. So to repair the family fortunes, there's only one thing to do. The year was 1851, and the best place for an actor to earn money at that time was the newly established state of California, where gold had been discovered, and actors flocked from the East Coast around the Isthmus of Panama, or across the Isthmus of Panama, up to San Francisco. So that was the scheme that Junius Brutus Booth and his son Edwin hatched to repair the family fortunes. They make this arduous journey, and they get to San Francisco. And that's where the father-son relationship really falls apart. And when the time comes for them to end their California tour, Edwin says to his father, go back alone. I want to stay here and try to be a leading man in San Francisco in my own right. And Of course, Junius Brutus Booth is too proud to argue. He packs his bags full of gold dust. He gets on the steamboat, makes the journey back uh, across the Isthmus of Panama. And without his watchdog and guardian, Edwin, he falls into trouble. All of his profits from California um, are stolen, and he dies on a steamboat. 
it's really a tragic story. I mean, here you have Edwin, after his father's death, he, he blames himself for the death, but he kind of goes off. He doesn't even know about it for months because he's in a traveling troupe and he's finally free and it's his, mo- his great moment, actually. Uh, but later he really torments himself and it becomes part of his great burden to carry and perhaps contributes later to his becoming uh, an alcoholic. And in the meantime, you have John Wilkes Booth stuck in this life he doesn't like, uh, resenting his brother, and also an out, growing up an outcast because of his father's uh, disgraceful profession as an actor, but also because he's been outed as an illegitimate child, and he suffers publicly all sorts, the whole family does all sorts of humiliation over that. Despite uh, all of this, John Wilkes Booth tries to become an actor. And and this is where the story um, of this rivalry really picks up because Edwin, the older brother who by now is tremendously successful, instead of helping him, he forbids John Wilkes Booth from taking the stage anywhere near where he's appearing. He has this idea like we can't overload the American public, theater public, with, with booths. And in fact, he splits up the country into territories and... Uh, he gives his older brother, Junius Jr., by the way, there, there are three actors in this Booth family, Junius, Edwin, and and John Wilkes. So he, he splits up the country, he gives Junius Jr. the West, and he gives John Wilkes the South, and he keeps the North, you know, New York, New York, Washington, D.C., Boston, the most populous and lucrative cities. He keeps them for himself. So... How clear is this to his brothers that, that they're being cut out of the good uh, territory? And, and how does this contribute to this story of family rivalry and family resentment leading to violence? Oh, it's, it's an extraordinarily bitter division. Um, John Wilkes writes about it as though he's been disinherited from a future of greatness that he could have had. And Edwin is being really smart here. The theaters in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, that's where you go to make a great living as an actor. The theaters in the South are spread far apart. You have to travel hundreds of miles to get from you know, New Orleans to Richmond. And they're smaller, and the currency there is different. John Wilkes was never trained as an actor. He had no ability, and his performance on stage was enough to embarrass Edwin. He was a terrible actor. Oh, I mean, that just has to be said, right? He was just terrible. But he seemed to have been uh, big and strong and be a good sword fighter. So he had that going for him. Oh, yes. I mean, he was fantastic. Give us an example. Of course. The newspapers of the 19th century, theater critics delighted in coming up with ways to talk about how John Wilkes Booth murdered scripts and and disastrously performed. They really talked about his lack of elocution. So you have to remember that Junius Brutus Booth grew up in London. His son Edwin sounded like a British national. He spoke and received pronunciation, that heightened, beautiful um, English accent that we come to expect with Shakespeare performances. John Wilkes sounded like a kid who grew up on the streets of Baltimore. Let's see if I'm looking at um, one of these wonderful takedowns, you know, scathing reviews. Um, John Wilkes mispronounces many words, which he articulates distinctly. There is no possible excuse to be found for saying toe instead of two, untrals for entrails, humanity for humanity, or for turning Henry into Henry. 
these errors in style are grievous and they are not trivial. And he compounded this by hurting his fellow actors so um, he would never learn his lines. So in order to generate excitement on stage, he would improvise a lot of physical violence. He would just substitute frenzied sword fighting um, while kind of roaring out the words of the monologue as he remembered them. And Edwin does not help his brother for many reasons, not least among them how bad an actor John Wilkes Booth is. But Edwin does arrange for the three brothers, Junius, Edwin, and John, to perform together just once. And that was in 1864, November. It's a benefit performance to raise money to build the Shakespeare statue in Central Park in New York. Just briefly, we'll describe describe this and the significance of it. Well, it's it's truly, you know, you talk about the bitterness between among these three brothers um, that this should have been a benefit performance to support the impoverished John Wilkes Booth and the impoverished June Booth. Um, Edwin at this time is the 19th century equivalent of a millionaire. He owns two theaters, one in Philadelphia, one in Manhattan. His brothers are struggling to even get by. It's a huge sold-out event. They do Julius Caesar. At Edwin's Theater. At Edwin's Theater, the Winter Garden, exactly. This is the artistic event of 1864. And of course, by this time, Edwin, unlike his brothers, has started climbing that social ladder. He's friends with people in the Lincoln administration. He's friends with Ulysses S. Grant's aide-de-camp, Adam Baddow. And so his brothers, joined him for this charity performance. And in the middle of this play, a fire... And we should say that John Wilkes plays Mark Anthony and and Edwin Edwin is Brutus. Brutus. And their older brother, June, is Cassius. Fire companies break into the theater looking for smoke. And what has happened is that the Confederate Secret Service plotted kind of an act of terror in New York Um, Confederate agents fanned out across the city with tiny bombs made out of phosphorus and turpentine. And so the fire companies responding check the theater. Um, They find no flames. But the next morning, as the three brothers are eating breakfast and reading the newspapers in Edwin's opulent mansion in Gramercy Park, they read about this Confederate attack on Manhattan. And this is where um, John Wilkes says... Oh, the South was right to attack New York City. And of course, when John Wilkes says these inflammatory things, Edwin explodes and he throws John Wilkes out of the house, down the front, the kind of grandiose uh, steps of the front part of the building onto the street and says, you're never welcome in my house again. It was an ugly scene. It's a terrible scene. And and it as you describe it, I think it's one that probably rings very familiar to many of us. I mean, this is this is not the only argument they had in which they are on opposite sides of an incredibly emotionally charged uh, issue. And it's something that if you look at today, it calls to mind, at least for me, the kinds of arguments that, that have been going on here in America over the last few years. And, and I'm thinking you wrote your book in 2008. Oh, so writing sure. this story, was that the backdrop in, in your mind? Well, it was always interesting to understand how kind of our, our history and our politics persist. And I think it's something that we can all relate to and understand. And it's what makes the Booth family story so hypnotic for me. 
because reading their their diaries, their letters to others, the political passions and how those political passions affected the family dynamic is so vivid and mesmerizing. But as you say, I was also kind of electrified and inspired to do it because it is such a familiar experience for us in this moment. Why did John Wilkes stage the assassination in a theater? What, are, what is your thinking about that? Wow. Well, the evidence that we have about what was motivating him is fragmentary. But he knew Ford's theater very well. And his fellow actors after the assassination put it really clearly. Part of what was so hurtful, I mean, obviously, he's killing, you know, the president of the United States, but to do it in a theater left a particularly deep wound among his fellow actors because they said John Wilkes Booth used the tools of our trade to pave the way for the killing of a president. He knew the layout of the theater. He timed his entrance into the private box where the president was sitting to correspond with a particular moment in the play that evening, Laura Keene's Our American Cousin. Um, He knew when the laugh lines were, when the applause lines were, and those sounds concealed the sound of his entrance. And even he fired the pistol when the applause line came and the big laugh came. Also jumping onto the stage was his signature trick, right? His signature choreographed move in the part of Macbeth, what he at the theater in Baltimore, also operated by John T. Ford, where he'd played the role of Macbeth, leaping um, from 15-foot um, heights was, as you say, his signature move. Um, he was also wearing his father's spurs, costume pieces um, from Junius Brutus Booth's uh, Richard III costume, actually. Which is why he broke his leg. Which yeah. they caught, the, the spur caught in the bunting that was draping the front of the private box, and that tripped him up and, and made him shatter his leg when he landed on the stage at Ford's Theater. But the fact that the, everyone in the theater that night were startled by his entrance, but they didn't really know what it was. It was so theatrical, and it was so heightened in its gestures. You know, he started stalking across the stage, waving his dagger, that some people thought it was part Part of the night's performance at first. And that also aided John Wilkes. It gave him more time to escape because the awareness of what had actually happened didn't settle in um, until a few beats had passed. And of course, we can speculate too, you know, the slaying in his eyes, in John Wilkes' eyes of a tyrant is certainly a Shakespearean gesture. Um, But that's obviously speculation. Um, But what we do know is the mechanics of it. And only someone who knew the theater well could have carried off what he did that night. Well, you said everything uh, except what I thought you would say, which is that (laughs) if you do it in a theater, you finally upstage your your famous brother. (laughs) And which he did. I mean, weirdly, at first, uh, you say after the Lincoln assassination, Edwin got even more famous, though, as if proving this old adage that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Oh, and what what's so 
fascinating about how Edwin set about using that bad publicity is that immediately after the assassination, Edwin writes a public letter to that is reprinted in most of the newspapers in the North, where he says, in penance for my brother's horrible crime, I'm going to retire from the stage forever. And, right. And then two seconds later, he's unretired. Oh, and guess what? He What opens uh, at the Winter Garden less than six months after Lincoln is assassinated? Our American cousin. There were howls of protest um, from a few places. Laura Keene, for one, the New York Herald um, editorialized about it a little bit. But uh, an angry mob actually stormed the editorial offices of the New York Herald in protest after they dared to critique Edwin. He was so beloved that when he finally returned to the stage um, as Hamlet six months after Lincoln was buried, there were rapturous crowds thronging the streets. Police had to be called to control tens of thousands of people who came out to do honor to Edwin. A a remarkable story, considering that right after the assassination, the rest of his family, uh, many of members of his family, including uh, their mother, were imprisoned and under suspicion. Not Edwin, because he had friends in such high places. But here he creates this huge gust of support for himself, an uh, amazing fame, uh, great success. But in the end... We don't know him now. We don't recognize this name. We don't know this story. Why did history so quickly forget this man, Edwin Booth? And why do we think of John Wilkes Booth? And was it by design? Because many people held up John Wilkes Booth as uh, as a great actor. It almost seemed like a campaign. I think one reason is that acting by nature is ephemeral. You have to see it live. Edwin's power, once he died, was gone. But the scene that John Wilkes staged and executed in Ford's theater, that tragic shock that kind of stands at the center of American history, a turning point that none of us can ever forget, that wasn't acting. That was reality. And that's what remains. And you see this as a Shakespearean story, uh, just a direct line between Shakespeare's stories and their characters and the tragedy that surrounded the Booth family. Uh, How so? The plays of Shakespeare live in a universe where the fate of nations are held in the balance, where villains and tyrants um, contend with each other, heroes and doomed relationships um, those are the currencies of Shakespeare. And so it's it's extraordinary that the Booth family offstage enacted tragedies and dramas that so closely echoed the texts that they made their living performing. I think it's I'm really trying, interesting yeah. that Edwin Booth was so known for humanizing Shakespeare's villains. Yes. Yes. You know, his father was the great interpreter of the villains. And Edwin himself, when I was writing the book, I kept asking um, myself as I was writing, you know, is he a hero or is he something else? He was a dark, vengeful and complicated person, but also an artist, an idealist, an abolitionist. He had as many facets as a Shakespearean character. Um, And so did his brother. They were larger than life, flawed and powerful. And so I think it was really rewarding to 
think about the characters they both attempted to play on stage and to always have that in mind as I was writing about them, you know, as they live their lives. Well, this just a lovely conversation and such a wonderful story. Thank you so much for talking today. Thank you for your questions. Nora Tatone is the resident dramaturg at the Court Theater and author of the 19th century theater history, My Thoughts Be Bloody, the bitter rivalry between Edwin and John Wilkes Booth that led to an American tragedy, which was published by Free Press, a division of Simon & Schuster in 2010. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. My Brother, My Competitor was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Shelley Steffens at WBEZ Public Radio in Chicago. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing this podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face-to-face with one of our first folios the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.